Good morning, Journey. Hey, does anyone on this side of the state line say rock chalk? Is that, is that, is it like a thing? Easy. Words out your mouth. It's like, okay, I like, I won't say it. But as a pastor in Kansas City, like when KC teams are in, like, like I'm in. So like, to, I, I hope for the Jayhawk fans in the house that tomorrow night goes well for you. Um, man, we're so glad that you're here today. We're in Matthew chapter 11 and 12. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and get ready for our Bible study time. You can pull your notes out of your bulletin or maybe fire up your app. It might be easier on your phone, but we want you to take notes. We want you to learn. We're in a series right now, the third week of a series called Revealed for Rest. And this series is an invitation from Jesus, and listen closely because it might be for you. It's an invitation from Jesus to people who are tired, to people who are weary, to people who are a little burnt out, to people who are just worn down with life, to people who feel a little broken. If that's you, an invitation from Jesus to you, like to try to take a deep breath and rest a little bit. Kind of our theme verses for this series are in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, even though our Bible study time will be in Matthew chapter 12. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, so we said when we introduced this series, every day, at the end of every week, each quarter, each year, things like finding freedom from things that have got us tied up right now, maybe socially, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, um, and trying to find some spiritual community that will support difficult days of life. Today, very specifically, is going to be about freedom. Part of our 25-year plan as a church is to develop partnerships with church plants that are, com- that are supporting their community and supporting the world like we are in here in Lee Summit um, on every populated continent plus Israel. So right now, we're real active in Central America, partner in Israel. Pastor Scott this summer will spend time in Uganda looking for some ministry partners on the African continent who are also doing work in Peru. So we think we can learn about Africa and South America in June with Pastor Scott this year. And then in July, Danielle and I will be with a group of about six pastors traveling to the country of Scotland, meeting with ministry leaders over there who have started a church planting movement in the country of Scotland, which was one of the greatest countries in church history now is one of the least church countries in all of Europe. And we will end our last day in Aberdeen, Scotland, on top of the Wallace Tower. If you've seen um, the movie Braveheart, the field where that final battle took place, William Wallace's sword from the late 1200s is at the top of that tower. And we will pray together as a ministry team with ministry leaders from Scotland who believe that the only way the freedom is if they find Jesus. Not if they conquer who, you know, England like they did in the 1200s. Not if they fix the economy. The only way that the people of Scotland can find freedom is if they find Jesus. And today is going to be a message about freedom. going to be a message about freedom that comes through Jesus. So if you feel like you've been living through a life of division, if you feel like 
your life right now has got you tied up in chains. Now just has you so scattered that you can't even pay attention to the things that are most important. Today's message is for you. We always pray before we jump into kind of our main text and ask God to speak to our hearts. Would you just bow your heads with me here and if you're watching online? Take that deep breath to just kind of settle your soul into this moment. For someone you know right now who is not able to find rest because of some division going on in their life, because of some things that have got them tied up or some things that have kind of scattered their attention, pray you might learn something that you Father, thank you that Jesus has been revealed for our rest. Show us today how we might have freedom practically, and then theologically speaking, show us how we can find freedom as followers of Jesus who come to Jesus. That's our prayer, and we ask it today in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. So we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 12 at verse 22, but before we do that, you need to understand Matthew is moving us from prophecy to proof. He's moving us from messianic prophecy. Here's what the Old Testament world will do to proof that Jesus did what prophecy said he would do. So I want you to know that before we jump into scripture, we just left Matthew. The last time we were in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew was quoting Isaiah. And Isaiah basically said this, when God's Savior comes, he's going to find people who are almost burnt out to light up their life again. He's going to find people who are, but the reality is they're just bruised. Instead of breaking them, he's going to put them back together. Isaiah tells us that the Messiah is going to come to help broken people who the world feels is useless. But then right after he does that, he says, Messiah will help hurting people. And then he says, look at how Jesus did it. He is the proof that he is the Messiah. Look at verse 22 of Matthew chapter 12. It says, then they brought Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Now circle or underline those three words, son of David. Because this is a, this is a big question for you and I. Because the son of David is a, is a, is a title given to God's Savior in the Jewish Scripture. Let me explain all the words that might be on your notes. Uh, In the Old Testament, the concept of God's Savior was called the Mashiach, or what we would say in the English language, the Messiah. But if you translate the word Messiah into an English word, the word is Savior. So the son of David was given to this person that they believe would be God's Savior that was talked about in the Jewish Scriptures. The Jewish Scriptures are a set of 39 letters that literally today still go by three names. In the Christian world, we call them the Old Testament. Genesis. Early church fathers called it the Hebrew Bible. They put the Hebrew Bible alongside the teaching of Jesus. They called one the Old Covenant, the promise God made to the Jewish people, one the New Covenant, how Jesus fulfilled all that, and we get the 66 books of the Bible together. For those of you with Jewish friends today, Orthodox Jewish friends, they would refer to those 39 books. Three names given to the exact same pages of Scripture, all of them that promise that the God of the universe sees hurting people and he's going to send someone to help them. Isaiah said he would help hurting people. Matthew said people. People said, could Jesus be the guy that Isaiah was talking about? So I want you to kind of take this messianic journey with Matthew. 
Because Matthew is setting us up to believe that Jesus is God's Savior. So he starts with Jesus promising that he'll help broken, worn-out people in Matthew chapter 11. It's like, see where Matthew's going. Jesus stands up and says, I'm going to help broken and worn-out people. And then he said, Isaiah prophesied that that's exactly what the Messiah would do and could do. That he, he could help broken and worn-out people. And then right after showing us the prophecy, he shows us Jesus do it. Jesus proves that he can help hurting and worn-out people. So I want you to see, Matthew's trying to prove to you that Jesus is the guy who's been promised since the beginning of time who's going to help hurting people. The Old Testament prophesies about him. Jesus promised he would do it, and then he backed it up, and he did it. The only problem with the Pharisees is they, they, they couldn't do algebra very well. Like, they were not very good at solving the equation because promises plus prophecy plus proof should equal belief. But that did not happen to them. Like, X plus Y did not equal Z to them. Like, remember when math got hard when they started putting letters with the numbers and they were like, 3 plus Y equals a whole different number? What is Y? And you're like, why? And they're like, yeah, what is Y? And you're like, no, why is there letters in, in like math? Like, for me, the greatest problem with word, remember word problems where they tell you like a real big story and then you have to solve a math problem? Like, the problem with word problems was the words. Like, take all the words out. Just give me the numbers in a calculator and I'll figure it out. Like the Pharisees struggled with the equation, prophecy plus promises plus proof equals he's got to be the guy. They didn't see it that way because they could not put the problem together in their hearts with the correct answer. So everyone's asking, could Jesus be God's savior to help broken people who are hurting? And the Pharisees are like, no, it can't be. Look at verse 24 as we pick up. When the Pharisees heard people asking, you think Jesus is the Savior? They said, it's only by Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan, the prince of demons that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they'll be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So, so much to unpack. This, this message, our Bible study today, is going to have kind of a minor in a major. So like if you go to college and you major in something, but then there's something else that's important that you minor. And we got a minor and a major in today's message. The minor that we're just going to throw in because I think it helps is what I would call like practical lessons on spiritual freedom. The text is not about these three things that I'm getting ready to show you. This, the point of this story is not practical lessons on spiritual freedom. But because it's a part of the story, we would be crazy not to at least look at it because Jesus, while Jesus is answering the question about how he provides spiritual freedom, he mentions how Satan puts us in spiritual prison. Let me say it again. While he's answering the question about how he provides spiritual freedom, he mentions how Satan puts us in spiritual prison. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here except 
unless you're dealing with one of these and you need to kind of do something to shift, this part of the message might be really important to you. So what are some of the practical lessons about things that keep us in spiritual bondage and keep us from freedom? Well, Jesus mentions Satan working in three ways. One, through division. He reminds us, listen, when it comes to having spiritual freedom, division always divides. Like no matter how good things in life are going, if there's some division between you and your spouse, you and your kids, you and your neighbor, you and your coach, you and your teachers, like when there's division, that destroys the peace that your heart should have. Anytime your life constantly is tied up with things or activities or thoughts that keep you from really diving into Jesus, that's going to steal your peace. That's going to steal your spiritual freedom. And anytime you have a group of people or something in your life that constantly leaves you feeling scattered, you have to address that because that steals your spiritual peace, your spiritual freedom. This message is not about this in Scripture, but it mentions it. So we might as well mention it because some of you have not been able to find peace lately. And one of these reasons is the main reason. This is how Satan does it. It's interesting, I was reading an article the other day about, about quieting. Um, I've got certain keywords in Google, so it'll send me when a news article's written, and I've been studying a lot about mental health and about stillness and quietness. This had nothing to do with mental health. It was actually about decorating and redecorating your house. And there's like this thing called quietness where literally you remove everything from a room, and then one day at a time you're allowed to bring one thing back into the room that makes you feel happy, and when, like, your happiness is complete, like, that space is a little quieter. That wouldn't work for me because the room would have nothing but, like, Diet Coke and chips and salsa. Like, that's what makes me happy. So, like, every day I would bring another 12-pack of Diet Coke and bag of chips. And when, like, it was filled with that and sports were on TV, I'd be really happy. That's how I quiet my soul. Um, quieting. Remove everything and then start over with only the good things. I don't know if you remember this, but we did this a few years ago. We did it together. Because for 13 weeks, we all got our life shut down. Remember? We all quieted. It was forced upon us. The first week, it was terrible. And then the second week, it was better. And then like for three or four weeks, I don't know about you, but person after person that I talked to actually enjoyed the quiet. It was like, how have I let life become so noisy? We're eating as a family again. We're riding bikes as a family again. We're out in the yard again. It was like we had permission to be quiet. That lasted 13 weeks. And a lot of us said, man, like when the world opens up, I'm going to keep riding bikes, and I'm going to keep going hiking, and I'm going to keep going out on the trails, and our family's going to keep eating dinners together. And like, how's that working out for you two years later? Or his life just climbed right back into your lap. See, I think as followers of Jesus, it's really important to recognize when division is stealing our peace and learn how to confront it or remove ourselves from it or it from us. It's really important to look at our schedule and say, what is the thing that keeps me so tied up that I don't have time for spiritual community, that I don't have time to serve my community, that I would never have time to go on a mission trip, that I can only get to church once every six weeks? What are those things that keep me tied up? Because I feel like they're stealing from my soul. What are those things that keep my mind scattered and distract me over and over and over again? Pastor Ryan and I this week on the podcast talked about social media and how scattered that keeps people. And we talked about notifications on our phone and how we're both continuing 
to even back down some of our news apps because every 30 seconds they want you to read something about something that doesn't even apply to you or mean anything to you, but totally scatters your mind from the thing that you're supposed to be leaning into. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, how can we keep from being scattered? See, the point of this message is not these three things. But there's enough of a lesson that some of you might need to grab one or two of these things. Like the reason you came to church is because God's telling you, you're going to have to deal with that division or you're never going to have freedom. Like God's telling you, you're going to have to like figure out how to cut some things out of your schedule and quiet your life or you're never going to thrive spiritually. You have to figure out that person or that thing that constantly interrupts the thing in life that's most important. Like some of you are here today to, to, to focus on the minor part of this message. And if that's you... I'm glad you learned it. I hope you'll do something about what you learned. But that's the minor part of the message. The major part of the message are the theological lessons of spiritual freedom. And that's the second thing and the most important thing I want to look at because that's why Matthew included this in his book. So we can learn some theological lessons, some things that will help us know God and know about God, which will help us know ourselves better, some theological lessons from this Bible study. And, and the question that we have to ask ourselves, because it's going to kind of unlock the theological lessons, here's the key question. Why did the Pharisees reject Jesus as the Messiah? Because we're going to find out that they are not going to reject that he is a supernatural leader. They're just going to reject him as their supernatural leader. Why did the Pharisees reject Jesus? Remember the formula. Promises plus prophecy plus proof has to equal belief but not for them. You say, what happened? Look at verse 24. Prophecy, promises, plus proof, belief. Nope. Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. A couple things I want to focus on. I'm going to leave that verse on the screen so you can just watch it, keep your pen ready in your Bible. Something that was written down and some things that we can just understand from the text. One, they clearly saw what had happened and heard what was being said. Because they acknowledged this fellow drives out demons. And by the way, this was not a weird thing for them 2,000 years ago because exorcism was one of the ministries of Jewish leaders. In Acts chapter 19, we see a high priest whose seven sons were engaged in the work of exorcism, driving out demons. And Jesus even says, if I'm driving them out by Beelzebub, who are you driving them out by? So this is a thing, right? Like they see that Jesus is driving out demons. They hear what people are saying about him. And in the Jewish religion, there were only really two supernatural powers. There was Yahweh, the God of Israel. And then there was Satan, this fallen angel who'd come to corrupt the world. And they looked at each other and said, we can't we can't say he has no power, because clearly he does. And if we say he has Yahweh's power, well, that's a problem for us, so we're going to have to say that he has Beelzebub. We're going to have to say like he has Satan's power. You're like, what's wrong with these guys? They acknowledge that he's supernatural, but not their supernatural leader. Why? Why did they reject Jesus as the Messiah? Here's Matthew's answer. Their primary problem with Jesus was not his power, it was his authority. They did not want to follow Jesus. And one of their primary re problems with his authority was what he had said about them that made them struggle to reject him. For those of you who've been with us a while now, 
Two years ago, we kicked off this study in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. We took about 10 weeks and went through all the Beatitudes, and then we just kept teaching through Matthew chapter 5. And at the very beginning of Jesus announcing his ministry to the world, he says to the spiritual leaders of the day in Matthew 5.20, they're off to the side listening to his message, and he points at them during one of his sermons and says, listen, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not get into God's kingdom. So like at the very beginning of his ministry, he calls them out, and they have a choice. They can say, we need your righteousness and come into his kingdom, or they can say, we're going to keep our own, which means we have to reject everything you say about the kingdom. And one of the next times Jesus mentions the kingdom is in the text that we just read. Matthew 12, 28. When you put them together, you realize why this is such a big day in the life of the Pharisees. Matthew 5, 20 months earlier, probably, Jesus is teaching, and he's like, you got to be better than these guys or you won't get into the kingdom of God. They think that's going to be something that comes in the future. But now Jesus is among them, and he clearly is supernatural. And Jesus makes this statement. If what I'm doing is by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom's here. And you were on the outside looking in. So we got a problem. If what I'm doing is from Yahweh, God of Israel, then the kingdom is here and you were on the outside looking in. So the Pharisees' primary problem was that of authority. And here's what you need to know. They were unwilling. They were unwilling to be a part of Jesus' kingdom unless they were able to have ultimate authority in that kingdom. And this reveals to us the two areas of trust that you and I are going to struggle with when it comes to receiving rest in the kingdom of Jesus. You say, what's that? You might write these two words down. They're not going to be on your notes, but you should write them down. Here are the two areas you and I will struggle to rest spiritually if we don't understand the heart of Jesus. We're going to struggle to trust, and we're going to struggle with humility. We're going to struggle with trust, we're going to struggle with humility. The first area that the Pharisees struggled was really an area of trust they wanted to be in control of the kingdom of God and they wanted to be in control of who got into the kingdom of God and who was left outside of the kingdom of God. And let me be really clear but really honest here. Some of you right now are trying to figure out if you're more Pharisee or Jesus follower. Because let me tell you about the Pharisees. These were not bad guys. These were guys who had memorized the Old Testament scripture. These were guys who had tried to follow it closely. These were guys who had tried to teach it closely. These were guys who had tried to shape policy and procedure in the Jewish government to make sure everyone lived a life pleasing to God. These were not bad guys. But when Jesus showed up on the scene and said, it's not about you and how you do things, it's about letting me be in charge, they just could not do that. They desperately wanted to be inside the kingdom of God. They just did not trust anybody else but them to set the rules for that. And there are some people in our world as the Christian church in America teeters between trying to figure out do we go far right or do we go far left who are watching the way things are going and they're saying, I desperately want to be in the kingdom of God. Watch this. I desperately want to be in the kingdom of God. But if I don't also get to choose everyone else who comes in based on what I feel about their heart, I'm not coming in either. You see the trust issue? The Pharisees struggled giving Jesus ultimate authority because it meant that they, or possibly somebody they thought had earned their right into his kingdom, couldn't come in the kingdom and they're like, listen, either, like either we get to decide what is good or evil 
Or nobody does. They were bit by the bug of Eden. Remember Satan's temptation in Eden? Adam and Eve, you should be the ones who choose what is good and what is evil. You can't trust God for that. What does he know? And we end up, humanity, in this tug-of-war with God trying to figure out, do I trust God and the heart of God for how to get into his kingdom and who gets into his kingdom? Do I trust him? Or do I want to be in control of that? It's a question in 2022 that people in American Christianity have to ask themselves, this question of trust. But it was more than that. It was also a question of humility. Because these Pharisees were unwilling to surrender to the reality that their best was not good enough for God. And even they were spiritually broken. And I don't know if it's that they were prideful or if they were afraid of being rejected, or maybe a mixture of both of those things. But they were unwilling to say to Jesus, you're right, we're unrighteous. But if you're still good with us, we're yours. And it's interesting because Jesus had a good friend named John who would write five letters to the New Testament church. One is the Gospel of John, one of the four books about Jesus in his life and ministry in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John would write his gospel, and he would say at the end of it, I wrote this letter so that you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. So John said, I wrote this book so you can believe and follow Jesus and have life. But then later, a generation later, he'll come back and he'll write 1 John, and he'll say, here's why I'm writing 1 John, because so many of you who have given your life to Jesus are wondering if you're still Christians. You're trying to answer this question, how do I know if I'm really saved? Like, I think I am and I want to be, but how can I be for sure? So John said, I'm writing 1 John so that you can know for sure, with certainty, that you really are a part of Jesus and his family. We will take the month of October to teach through 1 John together as a church because I think it's necessary this year for our church for you to know with certainty that you are a follower of Jesus or are not a follower of Jesus. But in the very beginning of that book in 1 John, John would say this in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, and I think he's targeting this at people like the Pharisees. He said, if you say you're without sin, like if you deny you're a sinner, like the truth is not in you. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But like if you deny that you have sin and need a Savior, like the truth is not in you and you're not, one of, you're not like you're not one of Jesus' people. So the Pharisees struggled with this humility part of being able to come to Jesus and saying, I'm a sinner, is that okay? And Jesus said, until you see me as the Savior and yourself as sinful, Christianity won't work for you. And let me say this to those of you who maybe are brand new or who are wavering in this. The front door of Christianity is believing that you are sinful and Jesus is your Savior. It is the front door and only door to a relationship with Jesus. You will never meet an authentic Christian who does not believe they're sinful. Because the only way you can become a follower of Jesus is to admit, confess that you're a sinner and ask Jesus to forgive you and be your savior. The word confess in the Greek language that we read in 1 John 1, 9 is a Greek word that means to say the same thing. So to confess your sin is to say the same thing as God about your sin, that I am sinful and I need a savior. It's to say something like this, and here is where freedom begins to come in. 
It's to say on my best day, I'm not good enough for God, but that's okay because Jesus was. Watch this. And on my worst day, I'm not too bad for God because Jesus died for my sin. Do you see the freedom in that? On my best day, it's not about me, so I don't have to repeat it. And on my worst day, it's not about me, so I don't have to fear it. Do you see the freedom in that? That is the power of the gospel that Jesus is trying to give these Pharisees who are holding on with everything they have, trying to work their way to heaven. He's saying, you can't do that, but you don't have to do that. And if you would have the humility to say, on my best day, I'm not perfect. Jesus would say, that's okay, I am. On my worst day, I'm not deserving. That's okay, you can be forgiven. That is the freedom of the gospel. The freedom of trust. You don't have to pick and choose who goes to heaven. You just have to point them to God. And here's what you need to know, as hard as it is to believe sometimes. God loves the people in your life who appear to be rejecting him right now more than you do. And if you don't believe that, I want you to pray for 24 hours on whether or not you'd be willing to let one of your children die so they can continue living the way they are and be forgiven for it. God loves your family and your friends and your rebellious kids and your obstinate grandparents more than you do. If you would trust that, you'd have so much freedom in saying, man, I can't convince this person to become a Jesus follower, but I do trust the heart of God. And if you think on my good day, I, on my best day, I don't have to be perfect. And on my worst day, I don't have to be condemned. It brings freedom. And that's what coming to Jesus to rest looks like. It looks like freedom for those who will come. But you had in the Pharisees people who rejected the authority of Jesus. And in rejecting the authority of Jesus, they rejected the rest of Jesus as well. And what's interesting is Jesus said, not only have you seen with your eyes and heard with your ears what I'm doing, but you have processed with your heart what is happening and you've gone one step too far because you've rejected it. I want to show you verses 30 through 31. And I just want to touch on briefly this thought of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because people talk about it and I think you should know what it means. Jesus said, whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. What exactly does that mean? Well, let's hear what it doesn't mean first. It doesn't mean that there are things in life that you can do that can't be forgiven. It doesn't mean if you took the blasphemy challenge when you were a middle schooler and you posted on YouTube that you were blaspheming God that you can't be forgiven. Because Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.13, I was a blasphemer but I was forgiven. It doesn't mean that you can't sin and be forgiven because Paul says all kinds of sin can be forgiven. doesn't mean you can't blaspheme Jesus because it says there slander, but the better Greek word is blaspheme. You can blaspheme the Son of Man and still be forgiven. What does it mean that you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit and still be forgiven? Great question. Here's what it means. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is rejecting the work of Jesus in your salvation and the direction of Jesus in your life. That's what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is. It is saying what God did through Jesus is not what I need to have peace with God. I think the author of Hebrews probably summarized it a little better 
in Hebrews chapter 10. If you have your Bible, you might turn there because this is probably a piece of scripture that you could have underlined in your Bible that'd be worth underlining in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27. The author of Hebrews is kind of given a little commentary on what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is, on what it looks like to get to a place where you can't be forgiven or won't be forgiven. And here's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. You see a really serious subject given with tremendous grace. You say, how so? The author of Hebrews says, for people who are not connected to God, awaits judgment and raging fire. Bad news. Good news. No one has to do that if they don't want to. But they have to accept the route God gives them to get to Jesus. And basically, the author of Hebrews says this. If you reject what God has done in Jesus, there is no other way to be forgiven. He's very specifically speaking to Jewish people who are saying, we reject what Jesus did on the cross. We're going to keep giving our sacrifice on the day of atonement. That'll do it for us. And he's saying, no, 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 that won't do it for you. Your old sacrificial system, all the other world religions, trying to be as good as you want to be. Like, if you reject Jesus in the work of Jesus, there is no other forgiveness. It's only in Jesus. That's what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It literally means to say this, I'm going to find another way to God that's not Jesus. God says, there is no other way. There is no other forgiveness but in Jesus. But if you know Jesus... Your good day doesn't have to be perfect and your bad day doesn't have to be eternal. If you know Jesus, you have freedom. So surrendering to the grace of Jesus, surrendering to the cross of Jesus, surrendering to the forgiveness of Jesus brings us spiritual freedom. But we have to realize that it's all about him and it's not on us. It removes our pride. It takes trust, but it can lead us to a place of rest, which is why Jesus has come to me You're weary, trying to be perfect all day, every day. You don't have to be, I was. You're burdened because you had a really bad week. That doesn't have to count for eternity. Come to me and I will give you rest. Now, it's interesting because we see in the story of Jesus how Satan works. He ties up, he divides, he scatters. And Satan thought he had won. When he tied a strong man named Jesus to the cross, he thought he had won. When he divided Jesus and his father God for three hours as Jesus hung on the cross and darkness hovered over the land, he thought he had won. When he scattered Jesus like seed in the ground and when they put him in a tomb like you bury seed in the ground and they rolled the stone over, Satan thought, I have tied up the strong man. I have divided him from the power of God. I have scattered him in the earth like seed. And on day one, his followers were pretty disappointed. And on day two, his followers were disappointed. But on day three, it wasn't disappointment. It was divine appointment. And when that stone began to shake, and when when it rolled away, and Jesus, the Savior of the world, who had surrendered to the plan of God, stepped out of the tomb and into eternal life, it was with the offer of, that we could one day step out of the tomb and into eternal life and find rest in him. Not because of who who we are, but because of who he is. 
And the question today is what's keeping you from that? Things to reject, things to receive. Reject those things that are dividing you. Figure out how to fix them or remove yourself from them. Reject those things that tie you up to the point where you have no time to engage your hands and your heart in the work of Jesus with the people of Jesus. Remove all that stuff from your phone and your life that just scatters your brain and leaves you thinking about everything but the things that God has created you for and called you to. Reject those things and receive the peace of Jesus. You will have to trust that he is the only gatekeeper and the best gatekeeper of who lives in his kingdom. But he cares far more than we do about people who are outside of it right now. We just got to trust that and be humble enough to say, I'm sinful but I've been given a savior. And that means my good day doesn't have to be perfect and my bad day doesn't have to be eternal. Because of Jesus, I have everything I need. Amen? That's the message of rest and freedom that Matthew presents to us today. What did you hear? What do you need to act on to take some steps towards Jesus today? Would you pray with me as we consider those things? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. But hearts are open. If you don't know Jesus personally today, he invites you to rest. And that invitation comes with forgiveness. That invitation does not come with an expectation that you will be perfect because you can't be. That expectation is not that you won't ever fail again because you will. The expectation is that you understand that you're sinful and that Jesus is your Savior. And you lean into that. And you trust him. You trust him to be a good fair, loving God. You trust Him. If you've never come to Jesus as your Savior, if you've never placed your faith and your trust in Him, you can do that today by faith. Right where you're seated from your heart to heaven, you don't have to pray out loud, but you can pray something like this just from your soul to heaven. You can say, Jesus, I need your rest. You can just repeat it after me. Jesus, I need your rest. Forgive me for my sin. Heal me from my hurts. Clean me up from my past. And lead me into my future. Today by faith, which means I don't understand it all, but I'm willing to lean in. Today by faith, I commit to trust you. And I ask you to help me do that every day for the rest of my life. Thank you that my good days don't have to be perfect days because Jesus was perfect. And thank you that my bad days don't have to have eternal punishment because Jesus is a forgiver. Today, I receive Jesus as my Savior and I commit to follow him. If you just prayed that with me in just a second, I'll let you know how you can Tell us so that we can pray for you, with you, give you some resources as you you begin walking with Jesus. For Christians in the room, what's stealing your freedom? Is there some division you need to deal with? Pray about it. There's some things tying up your schedule that just aren't real healthy? Pray about it. Are there some people or things that always leave you feeling scattered? Pray about what to do. Don't listen and learn without acting. See what God is saying to your heart and commit to act on it. God, thank you for your rest that brings freedom. We receive it today in Jesus. 
And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.